0: And my name is Fred, and I'm the lead pastor here. And, and with that, here's what I hope happens today. I hope you get more of that. As, as I teach God's Word, as, as we sing more songs at the end, like, like I hope you get more time with Jesus. And in that, you, you get to know Him better, and you get to trust Him more, and you get, you get to have more faith in who He is, and what he said he does, and what he said he's doing for you. Because if so, as your pastor, that means that is a huge win for us. If we do that through song, through teaching, through fellowship with each other, then, then, then I'm really happy with that, all right? So, so let's pray for that. Jesus, give us more of you. Uh, help us to, to understand you more, but not just to understand and to know you, but to believe you more. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, uh, there's this uh, philosopher slash uh, uh, ethics teacher named named Alistair McIntyre is his name. He's in his 90s, at least when I last checked Wikipedia, he was still alive. Um, uh, And and he wrote a book called After Virtue. Uh, And and here's what he attempts to do uh, in his book. He attempts to answer the question, is this good or bad? Right, and you can kind of fill in the blank with what this is, uh, but it's a great question, right? Like, like have you ever wondered if something was good or or bad? Maybe, uh, ladies, you've uh, tried a dress on and you've wondered, is this a good dress or a bad dress? Right? Loaded question, I know. <laughs> All right, but still, it's a question, right? You know, maybe, maybe you're in here with kids, and, or you've been in here with kids, or you've been in a public space with kids, and you've wondered, is their behavior good or bad right now, right? And maybe, maybe for students, those of you um, uh, who get different teachers every year, and maybe every semester, have you ever looked at your upcoming schedule and seen the name of a teacher that you didn't know, and you wondered, is this going to be a good teacher or a bad teacher? Right? And so these questions of, is this good or bad, uh, it, it's a great question. Let me ask you, have you ever found yourself asking that question? Is this, fill in the this, good or bad? Well, what Alistair uh, McIntyre does is, is he, he takes an example of a wristwatch, All right, And he says, okay, so think about a wristwatch, think about an Apple watch, right? And, and, and he says, if you apply this question, is this a good watch or a bad watch, You can't answer that question. Like, it is impossible to answer that question to determine if something is good or bad unless you know what it's for. When you know its purpose, when you know what it's for, then you can determine if it's good or bad. And so let me ask you, if if the purpose of an Apple Watch is to hammer nails, is it good or bad? Bad, right? If it's to tell time in every geographical point in the world, is it good or bad? It's good, right? Like you have to know what something is for before you can determine if it's good or bad. You see, his point is this, that without purpose, we really can't determine the value of something. Without knowing what something is for, we can't determine if it is good or bad. Now, once we know the purpose of something, then we can discern if it is good or bad. So that dress, right? What's the purpose of that dress to determine if it's good or bad? Is it to cover your nakedness, right? Which we have a store over by our house that sells pom- prom dresses. Bless your heart. Those of you looking for a prom dress. It is, a, it is I can't imagine. But is it to cover your nakedness or is it to make you look 20 pounds younger or 20 pounds lighter? Like, like, like what's the purpose, right? If it's, to, if it's to cover your nakedness, it's probably a good dress. If it's to make you look 20 pounds lighter or 20 years younger, it might not be a good dress right? What about, what about your teacher, right? Once you understand the purpose of your teacher, it can help you understand if they're a good teacher or a bad teacher. Is, is his purpose to help you understand what you don't know and to learn what you don't know? If so, then you might be able to put up with a style that you don't like to learn what you need to learn, right? Now, what if, what if this got more personal? What if the question wasn't about stuff outside of us? What, was, what if it's about us? What if the question is this? Is what I'm doing good or bad? Is what I'm doing good or bad? Well, Alistair would say it depends on your purpose, wouldn't it? You see, without knowing your purpose, you can never determine if something is good or bad. Now, church, hear me on this because I think this is one of those questions that are the questions that are particularly important for the times that we live in. And it's this, it's what is my purpose? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What did God create me to do? Who did God create me to be? How has God wired me? Students, you might be asking the question, can God even use me at my age? Like, like all of these questions. And in today's psalm, here's what I hope happens. I hope to give you like a frame of reference to answer this question. What is my purpose? Because today I want us to leave today like more clear on what our purpose is and what in the world Jesus has to do with it So go ahead and turn to Psalm 127. as you're turning there let me remind you about these chairs that we have, have up here we're, we're in a series on the Psalm of Ascent um, the Psalms of Ascent where the, the nation of Israel would sing these songs it was their playlist from wherever they lived to the place they called home Jerusalem and we're talking about how we too are on this journey from the place we live to the place we call heaven to the place we call home, which is heaven like, like we're on this journey with Jesus and we talked about how in Asheville man we get to live in a great place right but it's not our home our home is much much better our home is much much different and we're on this journey with Jesus until we get there and these songs are those songs that everyone sings on this journey and, and what we did with these chairs is we invited people to bring chairs that represented people that they're praying for on this journey with Jesus. Either to, to join the journey and, and sit at the table with Jesus or uh, to, to come back to the journey and sit at the table with Jesus. What we've also realized is that these chairs are for us. Right? That, that we can come back at any time and every time and, and, and be on a journey again with Jesus. And so I do, I invite you to bring more chairs up here. Well, let's see, let's see what Jesus has to say about, about this journey from the place we live to the place we call home. Psalm, Psalm 127 starts off with a little like subtitle, right? It says, A Song of Ascent of Solomon. Now Solomon, uh, you know, David's son, uh, king of the nation of Israel, he actually wrote two psalms in the entire psalms. He wrote this one in Psalm 72. And if you read this psalm, you'll see that this psalm talks about family and children is what this psalm talks about, which I find real interesting because Solomon had hundreds of wives and most scholars believe hundreds and hundreds of children. With those wives and the scriptures, we only followed uh, I think two or three of them, but but he had a whole lot. So so if anybody could write about family, I guess it's this guy, except the fact that he had three hundred wives. Oh, and his kids like drove him off the throne. So there's that. So so but 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 here's the deal: like like we're gonna see this in a minute too. God used him, right? God used him to talk about family and to write this psalm. About something that I believe is actually bigger than family, right? Because I believe this psalm is about our purpose. And in particular, it's about our work, the stuff we do with our hands. And it's about knowing and believing in your purpose and then operating within that purpose. Well, look at verse one. Verse one says this it's one that's probably familiar to a lot of us, right? It says, Unless the Lord build the house, those Who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now here's what Solomon is doing. Solomon is seeing two different types of workers in this psalm. Right? He's seeing a God who works, right? That 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 God builds and that God watches. Right? If you think back to Genesis 1:1, what does it say? In the beginning, God did what? He created, right? And so Solomon starts off with, with this view of a God who works, right? A God who builds, a God who creates, a God who watches. And, and I think Solomon is painting this picture of two different types of, of workers, and one of them is God, that our God is a working God, right? Now, let me tell you why Solomon, I think, could speak to this so clearly. because see, Solomon was, like I said, was King David's son, Right? And he knew he would be taking the throne one day. And he also knew he wasn't equipped to lead the nation of Israel. He knew that no matter what, no amount of training, no amount of, of, of advice from his dad and from his family could equip him to lead. And so he did what was wise, and he prayed. Right? And he said this in, in 1 Kings, this is his prayer, he says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David my father. Therefore, or, or although I am but a little child, I do not know how to, how to go out or come in. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this? Your great people. And so he prayed For God to give him wisdom. And our God is a working God. Our God heard him. Our God knows him. And guess what God did? Gave him wisdom. You see, Solomon understood that our God isn't a God who is distant and far off and leaving us to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. As a matter of fact, he is intimately connected to and involved with our daily lives, which means he cares about our daily lives. It means that he cares about our work. It means that he is present in our work. You see, he is at work for us and invites us to work with him. Now, the other type of worker that Solomon pictures here is a human that works without God, right? Unless the Lord build the house, right? The laborers who build it, build it in what? Vain, right? And so he pictures this, these two types of, of, of workers God is a working God, and then, and then humans who have a choice to either work with God or without God. Now, even this word vain, if you know Solomon's writings, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And what's the favorite word in the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity, right? And, and it, the vein is a word that means empty. And in Ecclesiastes, he talks about it as a vapor, right? That it's something you can see, but it's not something you can catch. It's not something you can hold on to. And so what Solomon is saying is that when we work, you know, that, that we have this working God. And when we work without him, it is empty work, right? It is, it is like a vapor. We might be able to see it, but there's really no substance to it. There's nothing to it. It has no value. And so, so here we see that humans can work with God or we can work without our working God. That in our work, we can work with God or we can work without God. So Solomon sees a God who works and humanity who has the choice to either work with him or to work without him. And for clarity, when I say work, because I, I, I was kind of thinking through like, how do you define work? And here's what I, I oversimplified it to. It's the stuff we do with our hands. Right? Because I tried to think through every exception to that, and even artists eventually put paintbrush to canvas. Right? It's not art until it's out. Right? You type. You, you do stuff with your hands like, like it is work. Like students do homework. Right? We do, we do school work. There's all types of professional work. There's volunteer work. There's work at home. There's work outside of the home. And it's work with our hands, and that God has gifted each of us to do different types of work. But Solomon goes on to say, okay, here's what empty work looks like. He doesn't leave it up to our imaginations. Look at verse 2. He said, it it is in vain that you rise up early and and go late to rest. Right? Empty work looks like this. He paints this picture of someone who rises early to work and and stays up late to get work. But without God, that work is empty. Here's the deal. What we're going to see in the next part of this verse, it doesn't mean that that work's not accomplishing anything. Empty doesn't mean that there's not production, right? What Solomon is saying is that this work without God has no value. It's bad because it doesn't fit our purpose. Well, look at what is accomplished in the rest of verse 2. It says, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, I now hear something that I had overlooked before that just really struck me as I, as I read this is that there is bread on the table, Right, like the work that that this person is rising up early to do and staying up late to do is actually paying the bills. Right, there is is provision for, for the family that's sitting here, right? There's a paycheck, bills are getting paid, needs are getting met, but it is empty work. And that's what this bread of anxiety means. Different translations, like the ESV says anxiety, the King James Version. Any King James people out there calls it the bread of sorrow. Ooh, right? NIV calls it the bread of toil. Eugene Peterson in The Message says, you work your your worried fingers to the bone, is what he says. And see, this is what it feels like to work without God. Lots of energy, lots of movement, maybe even lots of production, but at the end of the day, it's empty. It's to do your work, y'all. It's to do even good and holy work but to do it without God. And if you don't believe me, turn your Bible, turn your Bibles to Numbers twenty. And we're gonna look at a guy named Moses, right? Look at Numbers twenty. And it's this picture of what working without God could look like, right? And so Numbers 20, here's what's happening. The, the nation of Israel is, is wandering the desert. Uh, they're in that 40 years of wandering the desert. That's what the book of Numbers is. If you, if you like pictures, the way I remember Numbers is I picture a bunch of Numbers going different directions, right? Because that's kind of what happens in the book of Numbers. People are wandering, right? And, and, and they're traveling through a place called the Desert of Zin. Zin means flat. So it is a flat, hot desert. Can you imagine what is scarce in a flat, hot desert? Water. And the people need water. And they are looking to Moses, their leader, to provide that water. And they start grumbling and they start complaining and there's even this group that rises up in opposition to Moses, that if you don't give us water, we're going to go back to Egypt because we didn't sign up for any of this. And so Moses does what a, what a wise leader would do, same thing Solomon did, is he prays. And look at Numbers verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 6. It says this, and then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly, so they left the people and went to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Take the staff and assemble the congregation, and you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, so that you shall bring water out of the rock and give them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle." All right. So notice. What did God tell Moses to do to the rock to produce water? Speak, right? He said, Moses, take your staff, walk up there, and speak. Now, he doesn't tell him what to say. I mean, you can only imagine, right? Moses up there being like, water. You know, like, 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 uh, what do you say? You know, like, like he, 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 he goes. So, so look at what he does. And Moses took the staff uh, from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together so everybody's there, right? Everybody's watching. Tensions are high, at least for Moses, because if water doesn't come, what does? Rebellion. So all the people are there, and he says, hear now, you rebels. (laughs) That just cracks me up. As a pastor, what would you do? If I sit up and you go, you sorry people, let's just do this, right? Like, (laughs) that's what he does. So, you know, you get this indication. Is Moses' heart maybe in the wrong place at this point? Probably, right? I get it. If you ever lead anything, you lead your family, you probably get it too, right? Right? He says, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water out, uh, should we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the wa- the rock with his staff how many times? Twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. All right, so what did God tell him to do? Speak. What did he do? Hit it. How many times? Twice. Right? Once I would imagine because he stands up there and he maybe he is like going what what do I speak? What do I do? God told me to bring the staff. And he can hear the people grumbling. Now this is just my imagination, right? Hear the people grumbling. He knows that rebellion is near. Right? And, and I would imagine in his frustration, we already see his heart's a little, a, little, a little salty at this point, right? And he strikes the rock to get water out. And then it doesn't work. And he hears the grumbling getting louder. And so he strikes it again, and then water pours out. So let me ask you, was that productive work? Was the nation watered and their livestock watered? Yes. Was it faithful work? No. He didn't do what God asked him to do, right? But y'all, this is our God, too, because it's really easy to be like, oh, Moses, I can't believe you did that. But here's the deal. We do it all the time. Now, we may not take a staff and hit a rock, and we may not be standing in front of a bunch of people when we do it, but we often do our work without God. And yet, this is our God. God still worked through Moses, even though Moses was working without God. God still watered the people because he loves the people more than Moses does. You see, here's what our psalm is showing us about working with, without God, is that we can be productive and unfaithful all at the same time. Which means you can be rich and empty all at the same time. And you can be poor and full all at the same time. You see, in our psalm, go ahead and turn back there, go ahead and turn back to Psalm, psalm 127. In our psalm, we, we see this, that we can be productive and unfaithful. Unfaithful. There is bread on the table, but it is a bread of sorrow. It is a bread of anxiety. It is a bread of worry. And the work that provided that bread, that sustenance for the family, is empty. Why? Because this person that we see is working without God. But there's a better picture. Like, Solomon doesn't just leave us with a a bad example. Look at the rest of verse 2. It says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, here's what sleep is. Like, uh, I think the NIV translation is that God grants sleep to those that he loves, uh, which is always my favorite verse because I I fall asleep really fast. And so I think, God just loves me more. That's what that is. Uh, Not true. I just fall asleep really fast. Like, Get me still for ten minutes and I might fall asleep like like there's that but 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 the example that Solomon using is one of sleep because here 's the deal when you sleep, what happens in the world? does it stop or does it keep going? It keeps going and Solomon is saying when you lay down to sleep, it is a picture that God is a working God and you don 't have to anymore like for real, did anybody wake up this morning? shocked that the world continued without you? No, right? Because we know intrinsically that our God is a working God and he cares for the world. He cares for the need of the world and he works without us. And there is this opportunity to trust him and to rest in him and to sleep peacefully in that. And now, to, to illustrate this, right, he, 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 uses, um, he uses a different illustration. That's why we have verses 3 through 5. Like, Solomon is going to give an example of what life can look like working with God. And, 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 and that's why I think this context is important to understand. Because look at verse 3. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Right? Now, these verses need to be understood in context, right? Right? Solomon is talking about work and working with God versus working without God. And now he's going to talk about children and he's going to talk about childbearing because here's why it's the perfect example, right? Because no matter how hard we work in childbearing, if we want to call it work, right? No matter how hard we work, we can't create life. We can copy life, we can help it along but we can't create it. There is a part in the process of having kids where God has to work and where God is working and we can't create it. And now I know even bringing this topic up brings up all kinds of emotions, right? Because we have people that have tried to have kids and who can't, right? And to you in particular, I want you to know we see you and I, and I bet you understand more than any of us that in the process of having kids, there is something that only God can do. And you've had to struggle in trusting a faithful God in the midst of your sorrow. And to you, he's there. Right? He's there. And you know this to be true that there's a part of, of, of childbearing that requires God to work and we can do everything we can to help the process along. But at the end of the day, God has to do something. And this is what Solomon is, is saying. He's saying that, 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 that children... Our a heritage from the Lord, that it is, it is this whole process. There's, there's a place that God has to work in. And then what he's also doing is he's talking about what it feels like to have a bunch of kids. And you have to put yourself in Solomon's time, not necessarily in the husband of 300 wives. and or Actually, some people say like, like, like even more than that because he had concubines. I think, I think it's actually 700 wives and 300 concubines. No. <laughs> On multiple levels. No, right? But in ancient times, children were your retirement plan, right? The more kids you had, the better you were taken care of as you got older and could no longer do the work of the family because they did it. And he said, when you have a table full of kids, we're going to see in a minute, that is a place of rest because your your needs are are cared for. Look at the rest of verse verse 3 through 5. He says, "Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord from the Lord." the fruit of the of the womb a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate in other words in other words like like he's not talking about family planning here he's talking about work and work with god that that this isn't so much there's this part of family planning that we can't do right No matter how hard we try, we we get the kids that God gives us. We can't form their personalities. God does that. He's the one that knits them together in the mother's womb, right? We can't do that. There's a part of of raising kids that God does. Listen, my wife and I were school teachers. Give us a room of 30 kids, and we are most days in complete control. Give us either one of our kids at the grocery store, and we have lost everything, Right? Like like there's a part of child rearing and, and, and having kids that is God's territory. And so the work we do, it's an invitation to work with God in that. Right? Solomon's illustration here is that when we work with God, it's 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 what he's saying, it's like having a hefty 401k. That when we work with God, it is actually a place of rest. Insecurity, just like it is for an ancient Israelite to sit at a table with a, with a table full of kids. That was his 401k. Right? There's less worry. Students working without God. Now, I know all of this is like completely foreign to you. So let me give you like a student example of this. Right? test comes up, right? You, you prepare for the test. And I mean, because like last week I talked about when the teacher says, don't worry, this test will be easy. And so you don't prepare and you're shocked. This week, you know the test is going to be hard and you study every single thing and you open that test and or, or turn it on, whatever whatever they do. And, and And you take the test and you know what? You know you aced it. Why? Because you were prepared, you studied. There wasn't a single question on there that you didn't have an answer for. Anybody have a test like that? Yes. Like you realize the work was worth it, right? You realize that that working with God in the studying helped you rest in the test of it. When, When our kids were younger and had big tests coming up, we would always pray that God would remind them of what they studied right? Because we didn't want them to mistake trusting God meant being lazy, right? We wanted God to remind them of the things that they had studied because trusting God is very different than being lazy. As a matter of fact, what this psalm is teaching us is that working with God is worth the work, right? Working with God is worth the work, that our purpose the way we determine if something is good or bad, the way we determine the value of something, our purpose is to work with God in the work that we do. It means no matter what your job is, you can invite God into that. And so let's apply it uh, for for today because I started with this question, is what I'm doing good or bad? Well, according to Psalm, it depends. It depends. Are you doing it with God or are you doing it without God? If your work doesn't include God, then guess what? It's not good work. It may be productive, but at the end of the day, you're going to feel empty doing it. Now, I've got to tell you, here's what I love about this. It's because it applies to everyone. Like, I am, a, I am a pastor, I am a vocational minister, and I get paid to work with God. And, and this week, well, last week, today's the first day of the week. Last week, I was studying my Bible, y'all, studying my Bible, writing notes, like, like learning the scriptures. And I realized, as literally as I closed my Bible and was done, I realized I hadn't invited Jesus into the process at all. I hadn't invited God into the process at all. You know, the one who wrote it, who would probably be really good to get his thoughts on it. You see, we all do this. We all do our work possibly without God, which means that we can all do our work with God as well. You see, there are times when I'm doing the work of ministry, and honestly, I feel like Moses striking that rock, doing the work of God without God. And what I love about Jesus is all I have to do is turn around, and he's there. All you have to do is turn around, and he's there. Right? For you, it might look like putting task above people, or sometimes it might look like putting people above task, right? But when God is in the work, like that work becomes more full. In those moments, we can pause and we can pray and we can ask Jesus to meet us in the work that we do. And so it applies to you too. Whatever your job is, you can invite God into your work with you. Right, you, like you might be sitting in front of a computer all day, bless you. Right, that would be like a level of Dante's hell for me to do, sit in front of a computer all day. But for some of you, guess what? That's the way God created you. And you love it, and it's fulfilling because people need your spreadsheets. Right? Like, bless you. Seriously. Right? Right? No matter what work that you work in, like how many of you, let's, let's do a little raise hands real quick. How many of you work in the medical field? Yeah. How many of you um, are teachers or work in, the, in education, including homeschool teachers, like you're teaching at home? Yeah. How many of you, how many of our camp people do we have here today? How many of you work at camps? Yes. Right? Anybody in real estate or sales of any kind? Raise your hand. Anybody retired? Yeah, ooh, nice. My father-in-law says he's not retired, he's just refocused. It's just a different kind of work, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Right? Anybody self-employed in here and you get to pick the eight hours a day you don't work? That's great, right? (laughs) Right? Like, see, no matter what our work is, we can invite Jesus into that work with us. And so the question for us to consider is how, how can I work with God while doing my work? Right? For those of you who are here or are engaging online, either way, let me tell you something about the Christian life. Trying to work with God on your own effort is also empty work. You just can't do it. Because Jesus has provided a way. For you to do that. And it is through him. Without Jesus there is no working with God. And so if you haven't said yes to Jesus. And, and, and haven't um, uh, said yes to, to following him. Then let today be the day that you do that. And if you're here I'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you're online. Uh, there's someone online that can chat with you about that. But, but when you say yes to Jesus. What you're saying yes is to is joining him on this journey. From the place we live to the place we call home. For those of us who have said yes to Jesus. I want to show you just real quickly in the last couple of minutes what it means to work with God. And here's what I hope happens. I hope for all of us we're set free just a little bit. Because here's the deal. Anytime I talk about work, people hear performance. People hear got to. People hear should. Right? That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus said that his burden was light and his yoke was easy. And we see something in Jesus' life that, that, that happened uh, at the very beginning of his ministry. And, and here's, why this is, here's why this is important. If you look at Jesus' ministry through the grid of today's ministers, he was one of the most unproductive ministers we've ever had. He only worked three years, right? He, he had 12 people following him closely. One of those completely abandoned him. They actually all abandoned him at one point. Right? And if you look at his, his, his work through the lens of production, you would say what he did actually didn't, wasn't very productive as far as work goes. But here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that his effectiveness in ministry wasn't determined by production. He knew that, that those 12 guys, 11 of them, and then, and then the one that got bumped in, and then Paul that came in through the side door, that they were going to change the world. Right, And before he ever started his ministry, he was baptized by this crazy guy named John. Right, This guy that lived in the wilderness and wore wild clothes and ate bugs and told everybody about God's judgment and God's mercy. And when, when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he worshipped him. And he said, I'm not worthy to, to, to even touch his sandals. Like, he is so much more than I am. And yet, John the Baptist got to baptize Jesus. That's how we got his last name. Right? He baptized Jesus. Y'all got it? All right, it's fine. You'll get it later. You'll get it later. But here's what happens. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus comes out of the water, God speaks over Jesus words that we all need to hear because it is before Jesus ever started his public ministry. And God spoke over Jesus and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus shows us that our work with God is not based on our production. Right? And church... What would happen if we started off here too? What would happen if we started off every day and went to bed every night realizing that God is pleased with us? Now, I haven't seen too many of y'all in the morning. We've had some men's retreats in the day. and, And morning isn't our best time when we roll out of bed, right? And God is pleased with us. We go to bed at the the end of the day and we've had roller coasters of days and emotionally up and down. And work has been fraught with strife and conflict and, and all the things that work is. And at the end of the day, God is pleased with us. What would happen if we, as Fellowship Asheville, woke up every morning, went to bed every night, realizing that God's smile rests on us? You know what it would do? It would change the way we work. And it would change our day. You see, God is pleased with us because when he sees you and he sees me, he sees his son. He loves you. When God sees you, he likes you. When God sees you, you bring a smile to his face. Right? And so starting off with God's pleasure, how can we work with him while doing our work. Maybe you can pray before you begin your work day. Maybe even throughout the day, like like Matt a few weeks ago had to set our alarms on our phones for one fifteen. Right. Uh, key tip: If you lay down to take a nap at one o six, remember that the alarm is on at 1.15, or you will fly out of bed thinking the world is crashing in on you. Um, uh, pro tip there. But he's asked us to, to pray at 115 every day as a church. Maybe you can do that or set different alarms throughout the day. Maybe, maybe as you pray, you can ask God to, to give you eyes to see what's going on at work that you can't see, to give you compassion for those that drive you crazy. Right? See, some of these chairs represent people at work, which I think is really, really cool. Fun the work of God. Right? Maybe your work can give to missions and give to, to organizations that do, uh, do the Lord's work. So the question for us to consider is this. How can I work with God while doing my work? And in particular, how can I work with God while doing my work knowing that God is pleased with me because of Jesus? So that's the question. That's the question I'll leave you with. What would your work look like if you answered this question one new way this week. Let's pray. Jesus, these are your words, and, and, and uh, gosh, sometimes I feel like I just fumble through them, but, but your word also says that it will go out and do its work and not return void. And so I pray that today. I pray that, that you will do what you need to do in our hearts, that you will do what you need to do in our souls, and that we will be a better people because of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.